Book Three of the Spirit of the Laws. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Gittens. The Spirit of the Laws by Charles de Second, Baron de Montesquieu, translated by Thomas Nugent. Book Three of the Principles of the Three Kinds of Government. Chapter One Difference between the Nature and Principle of Government. Having examined the laws in relation to the nature of each government, we must investigate those which relate to its principle. There is this difference between the nature and principle of government that the former is that by which it is constituted, the latter that by which it is made to act. One is its particular structure, and the other the human passions which set it in motion. Now laws ought no less to relate to the principle than to the nature of each government. We must, therefore, inquire into this principle, which shall be the subject of this third book. Chapter 2 of the principle of different governments. I have already observed that it is the nature of a republican government that either the collective body of the people or particular families should be possessed of the supreme power, of a monarchy that the prince should have this power, but in the execution of it should be directed by established laws, of a despotic government that a single person should rule according to his own will and comprise. This enables me to discover the three principles, which are thence naturally derived. I shall begin with a republican government, and in particular with that of democracy. Chapter 3. Of the principle of democracy. There is no great share of probity necessary to support a monarchical or despotic government. The force of laws in one and the prince's arm in the other are sufficient to direct and maintain the whole. But in a popular state, one spring more is necessary, namely, virtue. What I have here advanced is confirmed by the unanimous testimony of historians, and is extremely agreeable to the nature of things. For it is clear that in a monarchy, where he who commands the execution of the laws generally thinks himself above them, there is less need of virtue than in a popular government, where the person entrusted with the execution of the laws is sensible of his being subject to their direction. Clear is it also that a monarch, who, through bad advice or indolence, ceases to enforce the execution of the laws, may easily repair the evil. He has only to follow other advice, or to shake off this indolence. But when, in a popular government, there is a suspension of the laws, as this can proceed only from the corruption of the republic, the state is certainly undone. A very droll spectacle it was in the last century to behold the impotent efforts of the English towards the establishment of a democracy, as they who had a share in the direction of public affairs were void of virtue, as their ambition was inflamed by the success of the most daring of their members, as the prevailing parties were successfully animated by the spirit of faction, the government was continually changing. The people, amazed at so many revolutions, in vain attempted to erect a commonwealth. At length, 
when the country had undergone the moft violent fhocks, they were obliged to have recourfe to the very government which they had fo wantonly prefcribed. When Cilia thought of reftoring Rome to her liberty, this unhappy city was incapable of receiving that blefiing. She had only the feeble remains of virtue, which were continually diminishing. Instead of being roused from her lethargy by Caesar, Tiberius, Caius, Claudius, Nero, and Domitian, she riveted every day her chains. If she struck some blows, her aim was at the tyrant, not at the tyranny. The politic Greeks, who lived under a popular government, knew no other support than virtue. The modern inhabitants of that country are entirely taken up with manufacture, commerce, finances, opulence, and luxury. When virtue is banished, ambition invades the minds of those who are disposed to receive it, and avarice possesses the whole community. The objects of their desires are changed. What they were fond of before has become indifferent. They were free while under the restraint of laws, but they would fain now be free to act against law. And as each citizen is like a slave who has run away from his master, that which was a maximum of equity he calls rigour, that which was a rule of action he styles constraint, and to precaution he gives the name of fear. Frugality, and not the thirst of gain, now passes for avarice. Formerly the wealth of individuals constituted the public treasure, but now this has become the patrimony of private persons. The members of the commonwealth riot on the public spoils, and its strength is only the power of a few, and the license of many. Athens was possessed of the same number of forces when she triumphed so gloriously, as when with such infamy she was enslaved. She had twenty thousand citizens when she defended the Greeks against the Persians, when she contended for empire with Sparta, and invaded Sicily. She had twenty thousand when Demetrius Valerius numbered them as slaves, are told by the head in the marketplace. When Philip attempted to lord it over Greece, and appeared at the gates of Athens, she had even then lost nothing but time. We may see in Demosthenes how difficult it was to awaken her. She dreaded Philip, not as the enemy of her liberty, but of her pleasures. This famous city, which had withstood so many defeats, and having been so often destroyed, had as often risen out of her ashes, was overthrown at Kyrenea, and at one blow deprived of all hopes of resource. What did it avail her that Philip sends back her prisoners, if he does not return her men? It was ever after as easy to triumph over the forces of Athens, as it had been difficult to subdue her virtue. How was it possible for Carthage to maintain her ground, when Hannibal, upon his being made praetor, endeavoured to hinder the magistrates from plundering the Republic, did not they complain of him to the Romans? Wretches, who would fain be citizens without a city, and be beholden for their riches to their very destroyers. Rome soon insisted upon having three hundred of their principal citizens as hostages. She obliged them next to surrender their arms and ships, and then she declared war. From the desperate efforts of this defenceless city, one may judge of what she might have performed in her full vigour and assisted by virtue. Chapter 4 Of the Principle of Aristocracy As virtue is necessary in a popular government, it is a requisite also in an aristocracy. 
True, it is in that in the latter it is not fo abfolute requifite. The people, who in refpeft to the nobility are the fame as the fubjeds with regard to a monarch, are reftrained by their laws ; they have therefore lefs occafion for virtue than the people in a democracy. But how are the nobility to be reftrained ? They who are to execute the laws againft their colleagues, will immediately perceive that they are aftiiig againft themfelves. Virtue is therefore neceflary in this body, from the very nature of the conftitution. An ariftocratic government has an inherent vigour, unknown to democracy. The nobles form a body, who by their prerogative, and for their own particular interefl, reftrain the people. It is fufficient that there are laws in being to fee them executed. But eafy as it may be for the body of the nobles to reftrain the people, it is difficult to reftrain themfelves. Such is the nature of this conftitution, that it feems to fubjeft the very fame perfons to the power of the laws, and at the fame time to exempt them. Now fuch a body as this can reftrain itfelf only in two ways, either by a very eminent virtue, which puts the nobility in fome meafure on a level with the people, and may be the means of forming a great republic or by an inferior virtue, which puts them at leaft upon a level with one another, and upon this their preservation depends. Moderation is therefore the very foul of this government, a moderation, I mean, founded on virtue, not that which proceeds from indolence and pusillanimity. CHAPTER V. That virtue is not the principle of a monarchical government. In monarchies, Policy effects great things with as little virtue as poffible. Thus in the nicefl machines, art has reduced the number of movements, fprings, and wheels. The ftate fubfifts independently of the love of our country, of the thirft of the true glory, of self-denial, of the facrifice of our dearefl interefts, and of all thofe heroic virtues which we admire in the ancients, and to us are known only by tradition. The laws fupply here the place of thofe virtues, they are by no means wanted, and the ftate difpenfes with them, an action performed here in fecret is in fome meafure of no confequence. Though all crimes be in their own nature public, yet there is a diftinction between crimes really public and those that are private, which are so called becaufe they are more injurious to individuals than to the community. Now in republics, private crimes are more public that is, they attack the constitution more than they do individuals, and in monarchies, public crimes are more private, that is, they are more prejudicial to private people than to the constitution. I beg that no one will be offended with what I have been saying. My observations are founded on the unanimous testimony of historians. I am not ignorant that virtuous princes are so very rare, but I venture to affirm that in a monarchy, it is extremely difficult for the people to be virtuous. Let us compare what the historians of all ages have asserted concerning the courts of monarchs. Let us recollect the conversations and sentiments of people of all countries in respect to the wretched characters of courtiers, and we shall find these are not airy speculations, but truths confirmed by a sad and melancholy experience. Ambition in idleness, meanness mixed with pride, a desire of riches without industry, aversion to truth, flattery, 
perfidy, violation of engagements, contempt of civil duties, fear of the prince's virtue, hope from his weakness, but above all, a perpetual ridicule cast upon virtue, are, I think, the characteristics by which most courtiers, in all ages and countries, have been constantly distinguished. Now it is exceedingly difficult for the leading men of nations to be knaves, and the inferior sought to be honest, for the former to be cheats, and the latter to rest satisfied with being only dupes. But if there should chance to be some unlucky honest man among the people, Cardinal Richelieu, in his political testament, seems to hint that a prince should take care not to employ him. So true is it that virtue is not the spring of this government. It is not indeed excluded, but it is not the spring of this government. Chapter 6. In what manner virtue is supplied in a monarchical government? But it is high time for me to have done with this subject, lest I should be suspected of writing a satire against monarchical government. Far be it from me, if monarchy wants one spring, it is provided with another. Honour, that is, the prejudice of every person and rank, supplies the place of the political virtue of which I have been speaking, and is everywhere her representative. Here it is capable of inspiring the most glorious actions, and joined with the force of laws, may lead us to the end of government as well as virtue itself. Hence, in well-regulated monarchies, they are almost all good subjects, and very few good men. For to be a good man, a good intention is necessary, and we should love our country, not so much on our own account, as out of regard to the community. Chapter 7. Of the Principle of Monarchy. A monarchical government supposes, as we have already observed, preeminences and ranks, as likewise a noble descent. Now since it is the nature of honour to aspire to preferments and titles, it is properly placed in this government. Ambition is pernicious in a republic, but in a monarchy it has some good effects. It gives life to the government, and is attended with this advantage, that it is in no way dangerous, because it may be continually checked. It is with this kind of government, as with the system of the universe, in which there is a power that constantly repels all bodies from the centre, and a power of gravitation that attracts them to it. Honour sets all the parts of the body politic in motion, and by its very action connects them. Thus each individual advances the public good, while he only thinks of promoting his own interest. True it is that, philosophically speaking, it is a false honour which moves all the parts of the government, but even this false honour is as useful to the public as true honour could possibly be to private persons. Is it not very exacting to oblige men to perform the most difficult actions, such as require an ex extraordinary exertion of fortitude and resolution, without other recompense than that of glory and applause? Chapter 8. That Honour is not the principle of despotic government. Honour is far from being the principle of despotic government. Mankind, being here all upon a level, no one person can prefer himself to another. And as on the other hand they are all slaves, they can give themselves no sort of preference. Besides, as honour has its laws and rules, as it knows not how to submit, as it depends in a great measure on a man's own comprise, and not of that of another person, 
it can be found only in countries in which the conftitution is fixed, and where they are governed by fettled laws. How can defpotifm abide with honour? The one glories in the contempt of life, and the other is founded on the power of taking it away. How can honour, on the other hand, bear with despotism? The former has its fixed rules and peculiar caprices, but the latter is directed by no rule, and its own caprices are subversive of all others. Honour, therefore a thing unknown in arbitrary governments, some of which have not even a proper word to express it, is the prevailing principle in monarchies. Here it gives life to the whole body politic, to the laws, and even to the virtues themselves. Chapter 9 of the principle of despotic government. As virtue is necessary in a republic, and in a monarchy honour, so fear is necessary in a despotic government. With regard to virtue, there is no occasion for it, and honour would be extremely dangerous. Here the immense power of the prince devolves entirely upon those whom he is pleased to entrust with the administration. Persons capable of setting a value upon themselves would be likely to create disturbances. Fear must therefore depress their spirits and extinguish even the least sense of ambition. A moderate government may, whenever it pleases, and without the least danger, relax its springs. It supports itself by the laws and by its own internal strength. But when a despotic prince ceases for one single moment to uplift his arm, when he cannot instantly demolish those whom he has entrusted with the first employments, all is over. For as fear, the spring of this government no longer subsists, the people are left without a protector. It is probably in this sense the Caddis maintained that the Grand Seigneur was not obliged to keep his word or oath when he limited thereby his authority. It is necessary that the people should be judged by laws and the great men by the caprice of the prince, that the lives of the lowest subjects should be safe and the pasha's head ever in danger. We cannot mention these monstrous governments without horror. The Sophie of Persia, dethroned in our days by Mohammed, the son of Miravez, saw the constitution subverted before this resolution because he had been too sparing of blood. History informs us that the horrid cruelties of Domitian struck such a terror into the governors that the people recovered themselves a little during his reign. Thus, a torrent overflows one side of a country, and on the other leaves fields untouched, where the eye is refreshed by the prospect of fine meadows. Chapter 10. Difference of Obedience in Moderate and Despotic Governments In despotic states, the nature of government requires the most passive obedience, and when once the prince's will is made known, it ought infallibly to produce its effect. Here, they have no limitations or restrictions, no mediums, terms, equivalents or remonstrances, no change to propose. Man is a creature that blindly submits to the absolute will of the sovereign. In a country like this, they are no more allowed to represent their apprehensions of a future danger than to impute their miscarriages to the capriciousness of fortune. Man's portion here, like that of the beasts, is instinct, compliance, and punishment. Little does it then avail to plead the sentiments of nature, filial respect, conjugal or parental tenderness, the laws of honour, 
or want of health, the order is given, and that is sufficient. In Persia, when the king has condemned a person, it is no longer lawful to mention his name, or to intercede in his favour. Even if the prince were intoxicated, or non-compass, the decree must be executed. Otherwise, he would contradict himself, and the law admits of no contradiction. This has been the way of thinking in that country in all ages. As the order which Asaurus gave to exterminate the Jews could not be revoked, they were allowed the liberty of defending themselves. One thing, however, may be sometimes opposed to the prince's will, namely religion. They will abandon, nay, they will slay a parent if the prince so commands, but he cannot oblige them to drink wine. The laws of religion are of a superior nature because they bind the sovereign as well as the subject. But with respect to the law of nature, it is otherwise. The prince is no longer supposed to be a man. In monarchical and moderate states, the power is limited by its very spring, I mean by honour, which, like a monarch, reigns over the prince and his people. They will not allege to their sovereign the laws of religion. A courtier would be apprehensive of rendering himself ridiculous. But the laws of honour will be appealed to on all occasions. Hence arise the restrictions necessary to obedience. Honour is naturally subject to whims, by which the subject's submission will be ever directed. Though the manner of obeying be different in these two kinds of government, the power is the same. On which side soever the monarch turns, he inclines the scale and is obeyed. The whole difference is that in a monarchy, the prince receives instructions at the same time that his ministers have greater abilities and are more versed in public affairs than the ministers of a despotic government. Chapter 11. Reflections on the preceding chapters. Such are the principles of the three sorts of government, which does not imply that in a particular republic they actually are, but they ought to be virtuous. Nor does it prove that in a particular monarchy that they are actuated by honour, or in a particular despotic government by fear, but that they ought to be directed by these principles, otherwise the government is imperfect. End of chapter 11. End of book 3 of Spirit of the Laws.